This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Well, thank you for that wonderful introduction. Um, I'm really happy to be here. I went to an undergraduate university that encouraged a similar sort of research as uh, for their undergraduates. And I remember as I was watching a panel this morning, I was taken back to my own undergraduate career and when we got to present our senior theses uh, in the, it was what was then called a women's studies program. And I, I even remember the clothes I wore and just how meaningful it was. And what's interesting is the, that the research you're doing is more important than you realize. Right? The research I did as an undergraduate at Brandeis University, which is where I got my degree from, ended up evolving into a book called Dude, You're a Fag. Right? It was my dissertation and now it's a book. And so I, I find it interesting now looking back, oh my goodness, almost 20 years later uh, at my undergraduate career thinking, wow, I had no idea that the seeds for my intellectual trajectory were sown during that senior thesis on boys in a fraternity. Right? That was a pretty awesome senior thesis. Um, <laughs> I keep it on my shelf because I'm so proud of it. Um, so what's interesting, though, when I, I started doing that research in 1996, uh, was that I had no idea that I would eventually be writing a book about bullying. I didn't know anything about bullying. I was interested, whoa, oh, okay. Sorry, I thought this was back at the start, and I'm gonna put it back here. There we go, okay, there. Well, there, that's where I wanted to be. I had no idea that I would eventually be writing a book about bullying. I was interested in masculinity. And I, I spent a year and a half uh, researching this book, Dude, You're a Fag. I spent a year and a half researching uh, a Northern California high school that I call River High. It's not its, not its real name. And uh, during that year and a half, what I did was I asked kids about their understandings of masculinity. Right? I asked for their opinions, I looked at their practices around masculinity. I watched as uh, boys uh, came to think of themselves and others as acceptably masculine. And what I saw is that they became acceptably masculine through homophobic harassment of other boys and heterosexist har harassment of girls. In other words, what I found uh, that constituted adolescent masculinity were practices that looked a lot like bullying. However, when I, when I looked back at my, 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 my text right, uh, a, a few years ago, I, I started to get all these, these calls about bullying. Right, The Lady Gaga's Born This Way Foundation wanted me to talk about bullying. Um, I would get calls from reporters to talk about bullying, and I, and I thought, well, what do, oh, I, I guess I know about bullying. I better go look and see what I say about it. I, I don't know what I say about it. And so I, I went back to my book and, and I looked through it. So what do I say about bullying? I only use the word bullying three times. And that's really curious from the vantage point of 2014, right? We hear about bullying all the time. A glance at the headlines show that bullying, or the word bully, appears so much in our, in our daily lives. Mentions of bullying in the New York Times, for instance, increased from 160 in the year 2000 to 6,730 in 2012. I mean, that's a massive increase. Right? The White House now hosts a summit about bullying. Like I said, Lady Gaga has a foundation, uh, anti-bullying foundation, uh, called the Born This Way Foundation. 
the It Gets Better campaign targets anti-gay bullying by giving young people messages of hope. A critically acclaimed film entitled Bully depicts what a lot of children have to go through on a daily basis as they go to school. One author even characterizes the society in which we live as a ver veritable bully society. That's what she named her book, The Bully Society. Now it's true, over the past several years, we've heard horrific stories about young people taking their lives due to bullying, specifically homophobic bullying. Tyler Clementi, Eric Mohat, Carl Joseph Walker Hoover, Jaheem Herrera, Billy Lucas, Jaden Bell, these are all the names of boys who took their own lives because they couldn't bear the homophobic bullying of which they were targets. They suffered from this form of harassment whether or not they identified as gay or straight. And their stories have become rallying cries for combating homophobia and ending homophobic bullying. And even the most cursory statistics indicate that homophobic bullying is a problem. 91% of youth hear homophobic slurs. More than 80% of youth hear these slurs on a daily basis. Most of the young people who hear these slurs or are targets of them actually identify as straight. And indeed, this sort of harassment has devastating effects. 90% of recent school shooters were teased for being gay. In fact, one of the shooters went to a school where the newspaper printed a rumor about him that he was gay. Teachers also see this sort of bullying. About half of teachers report seeing bullying behaviors uh, more than once a week. And sadly, most students say that when they tell teachers about the sort of bullying they see, there's no response. Now, I'd like to talk about what this bullying is really all about. Why is it that we have this national discussion about bullying, we have all these statistics about bullying, but I didn't talk about it in this book that seemingly is all about homophobic bullying. I'm gonna tell you a story from the book about a boy named Ricky. And that story can help us start to figure out why I didn't talk about it. Right? It'll help us figure out how it is that we frame bullying such that I didn't think I was writing a book about bullying. So this is Ricky. Ricky, as you can see, uh, works as a performer now. These are some of the pictures uh, taken of, of him dressed up as a, as a drag performer. Right? And there's also pictures of him in his sort of everyday clothes. And some of you who have read Dude, Your Fag might be familiar with Ricky. And for those of you who aren't, let me tell you about him. He was a junior at the time of my research at River High. He was one of the best dancers in the school. He was one of the, the two best dancers uh, at, at the school. He was tall, thin, as you can see here, white. He sometimes wore multicolored hair extensions to school. Sometimes he didn't. Sometimes he wore uh, skirts. Sometimes he didn't. Sometimes he wore mascara. Sometimes he didn't. He also identified as gay. And he told me the homophobic harassment started early. It started in elementary school. He told me, I'm talking like sixth grade, I got called a fag. Fifth grade, I was called a fag. I have the paperwork. 
because my mom kept everything. And he told me that the harassment intensified as he moved on into high school. And, and that's not something that's unique to Ricky. In fact, when you look at the, at the data on homophobic harassment, we see that as kids get older, the harassment can intensify. And so even though Ricky was one of the best dancers at the school and he choreographed most of the halftime shows and many of the school assemblies, he also suffered intense harassments at the events that his, his, in which his choreography showed up. Right? For instance, he told me when he went to the homecoming football game to see his halftime show that he, that he had choreographed, he walked up uh, to, to go to the football game and he said, two guys started walking up to get tickets and said, there's that fucking fag. And Ricky responded with, excuse me? And the boys to told him, don't talk to me like you know me. Ricky went to go tell a school supervisor, and she did, as they did in most cases where he talked to them, nothing. He ended up going into the football game, because he's incredibly brave, and he said he had water balloons thrown at him. Uh, he heard uh, right and left, right and left, he says. What the fuck is that fag doing here? That fag has no right to be here. And he ended up leaving halfway through the football game. And this was not unique. He endured similar torment at the school's Creative and Performing Arts Day. And I don't know if you guys went to high schools that did these, but it's one of those days where you're released from class and everybody gets to wander around. And, um, and you know, on one quad you had students dancing, on another quad you had people singing, on another quad you had you know, artwork displayed, right? It's one of those really fun days in high school. And so everybody's all excited and they're all wandering around. And, and Ricky was on the school's jazz dance team. And he was the only male on the school's jazz dance team. And so it came time for the jazz dance performance. And he comes out on the stage accompanied by a bunch of female students. They're all wearing the exact same outfits, tight black tank tops, baggy black pants, and they start to do their dance. And what was unique about their dance is that Ricky was doing the same moves that all the girls were doing. Right? Usually when you see mixed gender dance groups, the boys do the more athletic moves or their, their sort of bases to toss the girls up in the air. Right? Uh, but Ricky was doing the same head swivels, hand movements, and hip swivels that the girls were doing. I won't do them for you here because I'm not a very good dancer. Um, so it would just be torture. Um, but, but I stood with a bunch of other boys at the school while we watched the team dance. Nils, uh, one of the boys next to me, turned to his friend and said, it's like a car wreck. You just can't look away. On the other side of me was the captain of the school's JV football team. And he shook his head watching Ricky dance and said, that's disgusting, just disgusting. That guy dancing, it's disgusting. And he stomped off in revulsion. So even though dancing was the most important thing in Ricky's life, he told me he didn't attend school dances because he felt like he had to watch his back the whole time. Unless you think he was sort of uh, oversensitive, I sat with boys in auto shop one day and listened to them talk about the school prom. And one of them said, I heard Ricky is going in a skirt. It's a hella short one. Another boy responded with, I won't even go if he's there. And another said, I'd probably beat him up outside. And this kind of physical violence was an everyday threat in Ricky's life. He varied his route home from school each day. He carried a rock in his hand just in case he was attacked. And he told me he was careful ne never to meet other boys' eyes, lest they perceive his, his eye meeting as some kind of challenge. Not surprisingly, 
Ricky received no protection from those kind of threats, and he eventually dropped out of school. He now makes his living, uh, often in Las Vegas, but also in the Bay Area, as, um, as a drag performer. So, why do I share with you this story of Ricky? The story seems to underscore exactly what I've been talking about in terms of homophobic bullying, right? This looks an awful lot like the bullying that we hear about. Right? This, is, this, is the, this is the sort of thing that, that makes the headlines. But I think what Ricky's story highlights is something that's missing in these stories. Because if you pull back the lens and look at the school that Ricky was in, you see something very interesting. And that is that there were other gay boys at this school. And those other gay boys didn't report the same kind of harassment that Ricky did. And indeed, when I asked boys at the school about gay boys at their school, they didn't talk about these other boys. And these other boys were out, right? One of them was the president of the GSA, right? But they weren't subject to the same kind of harassment. Now, why weren't they subject to the same kind of harassment? And I think the answer to that is gender. That homophobic harassment has to do, in many ways, with contemporary definitions of masculinity. That boys are subject to homophobic harassment, on the one hand, because they're gay. That does happen. But in many ways, this sort of homophobic harassment functions as a form of disciplining other boys into correct expressions of masculinity. That is, through these, homophobic harass through these forms of homophobic harassment, other boys remind each other how to be men. Right? Now, when I asked boys about this, one guy said, well, guys are just homophobic. But as I continued to do my research, it became clear that this was a gendered homophobia. And that this homophobia was as much about regulation and production of masculinity as it was about fear of actual gay men. So what does this have to do with our sort of current way of talking about bullying? And I think this actually says a lot about how we currently talk about bullying. Because as the discussion is framed right now, it, we assume a couple things. First, is that we'd all recognize homophobic bullying if we saw it. Second, it seems largely incidental that most of the perpetrators and victims of homophobic bullying are boys. And third, that this is really all about sexuality, right? It's really about fear of gay men. What I'm going to pose is that this is really about disciplining boys into a correct presentation of gender, that it's really about masculinity. But before we can understand how it's about masculinity, we need to understand how boys define masculinity. So I spent a lot of my time at River High asking boys how they defined masculinity. And they had a pretty clear definition. And it wasn't just because they were men, right? A boy was not masculine by virtue of the fact that he was male. Rather, they told me they had to constantly show other people that they were powerful, competent, unemotional, heterosexual, and dominant. And what this meant was that to be masculine was an identity that was never fully secured. It was one that was constantly at risk, one in which you had to constantly prove that you were all of these things simultaneously. And what I found is that boys proved that they were all of these things through homophobic teasing, joking, and bullying. 
And this was something I came to call a fag discourse. Now I know the term fag is jarring. It's not a pleasant term. I don't like to say it. I don't like to hear it. And it may feel very uncomfortable to you guys as an audience that I'm saying this word, and I'm going to say it a lot right, over the next uh, uh, half an hour, 45 minutes or so. I encourage you to sit with that discomfort. Right? It doesn't feel good. And I think it's important that it doesn't feel good because we have to remember that this is how high school students feel on a daily basis. This is a word they hear all the time. And in fact, I heard it so much at this particular school that it would sort of just resonate in my head, right? I almost came to think of it as sort of a fag popcorn. I would be walking down the hall and a student would yell, fucking faggot, and then just go back to what he was doing. And I would think, what, what is going on, right? What, what is this all about? Um, and so I began to ask boys about what this term meant. And what I found when I asked them what it was about, right, was not that guys were just homophobic, as one of the boys said to me, but that this term is not just about gay people. It's the most serious insult a boy can call another boy, and it's a gendered insult. So I began to ask boys about this. You know, what, what do you mean when you're saying the word fag? What is this about? And Darnell told me, it doesn't have anything to do with being gay. What? Okay. Um, JL, another boy, told me, fag, seriously, it has nothing to do with sexual preference at all. You could just be calling someone an idiot, you know? David said, being gay is just a lifestyle. It's someone you choose to sleep with. You can still throw a football around and be gay. Indeed, one third of the boys that I spoke with said that they would never call an actual gay guy a fag. Uh, said one of my respondents, Habes, I actually say fag quite a lot, except for when I'm in the company of an actual homosexual person. Then I try not to say it at all. When I'm just hanging out with my friends, though, I'll be like, shut up, I don't want to hear you anymore, you stupid fag. And, and Habes wasn't alone in this. JL told me, there's people who are retarded that nobody wants to be associated with. I'll be so nice to those guys, and I hate it when people make fun of them. It's like, bro, do you realize they can't help that? And then there's gay people. They were born that way. So in this interesting twist, right, there's this sort of success around the issue of gay rights in which these boys have taken in the notion that Gay people were born this way, right? It might be a stigma, it might not be the world's best thing, but we can't be mean to them because of it. And indeed, this isn't limited to this group of boys. A recent study out of Canada uh, showed, a recent study of, of college-age men out of Canada showed that uh, when asked uh, if, when they use the word gay or fag, when directed at another guy, did they actually mean that this other guy was gay, 100% of the respondents, it's very rare to get 100% of respondents on board on anything, but 100% of the respondents in this study stated that they did not mean that another guy was gay when they called him gay or fag. So it's not limited to, to these boys that I talk to, they aren't unique. And indeed, they're exhibiting what scholar uh, Ricky Wilchins calls the Eminem exception. You all know who Eminem is, right? I know I'm getting behind in my cultural references, but I think Eminem's still, still there, right? I still, still can hang on to him. And so, so what's interesting is, is you know, Eminem's songs are not the most gay-friendly, as some of you may or may not have noticed. But then he goes on stage and performs with Elton John, who identifies as gay. 
And so he, he was asked about this disjuncture. How could you sing these incredibly homophobic lyrics and then perform with Elton John? And Eminem said, well, I don't call people faggot because of their sexual orientation, but because they're weak and unmanly. And I would suggest that that's the same sort of definition that these boys are engaging in. I mean, you hear it when David says, you can still throw a football around and be gay. It's not the world's best thing to be gay, but if you can still be masculine, AKA throw a football around, then it's okay. We're not gonna, we're not gonna harass you, right? What also became clear when I asked the boys about, um, about using this word was that it's incredibly serious. It's a very, very serious insult. Darnell told me that boys have been told from a young age uh, that you should, hey, not be a little faggot. Jeremy told me to call someone gay or fag is the lowest thing you can call someone because that's like saying you're nothing. And then as the M&M exception indicates, it's a gendered insult. Right? I started to ask boys about this insult. Right? So I, I found out it, it wasn't necessarily about gay guys. Right? So it wasn't, wasn't, that's not necessarily what, what we were talking about. And, and I also asked them, you know, when, when that boy said, oh, our, you know, guys are just homophobic, I was like, really? You don't like gay men or lesbians? And you can imagine his response. He said, oh no, to see two hot chicks banging bodies in bed, that's every guy's fantasy right there. Okay, so already I had some sort of hunch that it was gendered, right? That this was a gendered insult. This wasn't about lesbians. And then when I went on to ask about gay men, it became clear that it's about boys failing at masculinity, not necessarily about gay men. And indeed, at River High, you could be vulnerable to this insult as a boy if you were stupid, feminine, incompetent, cared too much about clothing, were too emotional, were too touchy, or danced. All of those things could render you vulnerable to the epithet. Right? Chad, for instance, told me that you could be called a fag if you were, quote, too happy or something. Um, similarly, boys weren't supposed to care about their clothing. One day I watched as a boy walked into the auto shop classroom, and, and I don't know how many of you have spent time in an auto shop classroom, but it's not clean, lots of grease everywhere. And the boys have these coveralls they could wear, but they don't wear them, right? Because you're not supposed to care about whether or not you're dirty. And so this boy comes in from the outside working on some cars covered in grease, and he says, he looks down his pants, and he looks up, and they're, they're covered in grease, he looks up and he says in a sing-song, lispy voice, I got my good pants all dirty. Because only a mincing, lisping fag would care about getting his clothes that dirty. And I asked this boy later, well, what kind of things can, can render you vulnerable to, to this epithet, to this insult? And he said, anything, literally anything. Like you were trying to turn a wrench the wrong way or something. Dude, you're a fag. Even if a piece of meat drops out of your sandwich, dude, you're a fag. I'll let you think about the psychoanalytic implications of a piece of meat dropping out of your sandwich. It's one of my favorite lines. But what I, what I think is important about that is it's actually not anything, literally anything. Right? It feels like it's anything because of the gauntlet that these boys had to run on a daily basis. Right? But really, it was any way in which those boys were failing at the tasks of masculinity that I laid out earlier, right? Being competent, being heterosexual, being dominant, being powerful, 
Were you to fail at any of those, you could be rendered vulnerable to this epithet. Indeed, I think this Twitter post sums it up best. A faggot isn't someone who's gay, it's someone who acts like a woman. So again, this definition is not local to these boys, nor does, it seem to nor, nor does this insult necessarily seem to be declining. I've been doing research recently on the use of homophobic uh, phrases on, on Twitter, and we've got some really interesting data out of the No Homophobes Project that shows, uh, I think you guys can see it, right? We, so it lists out uh, these different epithets, faggot, no homo, so gay, and dyke, and how frequently they have been used since the inception of the project in 2012. And what's interesting is that the word fag outpaces the other insults so drastically, right? 24 million, right? Okay, I'm bad with numbers, I'm not a number person, right? Um, and, and the next one is six million, right? I mean, so, so it's a huge, huge jump in terms of this epithet. And I, I, I show that to you to underscore both its importance and its ubiquity right? in terms of a disciplinary mechanism. Right, and this is something that, that we would now call cyberbullying. Uh, but I think it's very clear in the research I did in Deidre Fag that this kind of bullying way preceded the rise of the interwebs. Right? So here's the thing about homophobia and bullying. Usually we think about bullying or homophobia as a trait of a sort of backwards, uneducated person, right? The only people who are really homophobic these days are people who just don't know any better, right? They just haven't been educated. Well, I think what's interesting about thinking about homophobic bullying in terms of a fag discourse is that it really challenges that notion, right? That what we see happening when we think about homophobia as a fag discourse is we see this form of homophobia as central to young men's friendships, not as the province of some backwards, uneducated person, right? which is often how we think about bullying. That is, boys often make homophobic jokes, comments, and insults right? in, the, in the service of forging a friendship with another boy. The other thing we often see in this contemporary discourse around bullying is that we think about it as sort of one big powerful kid, right, picking on a less powerful kid, right, that it's some big bad bully that's out there versus some little sort of weakling, right? I always think of that scene from A Christmas Story. Have you guys seen that movie, right, when they're like the big mean kids are like going after the other kids after school? Like that, that's sort of an image of bullying that, that a lot of us might have. But what's interesting is that when we think about bullying as happening through this fag discourse, we actually see it happening between peers. And we don't see one group of bullies and one group of victims. Rather, in any given interaction, we can see kids moving back and forth between the bully and the victim identity. And so what does the fag discourse look like? Right? How does it happen in everyday interaction? Well, the first form it takes is the aggressive form. And we've seen that. That's what happens with Ricky, right? The aggressive form of the fag discourse is one in, with which we're all familiar. We get it, right? That's the one that looks like the stereotypical image of bullying. Right? It's, it's when kids are really, really mean to one particular kid, and, and that kid never does any of the bullying himself. That's what we saw with Ricky. But I'd say more often, this kind of homophobic harassment is sort of hidden in humorous interactions between young 
men. Sociologists and psychologists have pointed out that humor is actually central to young men's relationships with one another. Uh, men manage anxiety about intimacy with one another through joking about it. And I would say one of the primary ways this joking takes place is through homophobic jokes, right? For instance, this is uh, a still from a video that one of my respondents posted on YouTube, uh, as he does. He likes to post a lot of things on YouTube. And it, it, when I was interviewing him, which I, I was interviewing this particular kid for a different project, didn't even have to do with homophobia, but he and his friends were so excited to show me this video because they thought I would crack up, obviously, right? Um, and so they, they took me to, to YouTube, said, show me this video, and it's he and his friends at IHOP, right? And in this video, he asked his friend, his, his friend didn't have any money to pay for pancakes. You've all found yourself in this situation. You're out with your friends. You don't have any money. Someone lends you some money. However, um, Craig, the boy who was taking the video, didn't want to give Kevin money without humiliating Kevin first. And so he made Kevin repeat a series of confessional phrases in this particular video. He made him say, I, Kevin James Wong, 17 years old, senior at Valley High School in Santa Clarita, all the names and towns have been changed here, am now confessing that I, Kevin Wong, am a homosexual male. Right? Kevin was not a homosexual male, but all of the friends at this point start cracking up right, in the video. And like I said, they're excited to show it to me. Right? So, because they thought I would find it funny. Um, <laughs> I think that's what happened. You know, my favorite movie is Jackass, so I think that's what happens when you research adolescent masculinity. Um, and so I show this here to indicate that these guys, you know, these guys were friends. This is not an instance like the ones Ricky experienced, where anybody was scared, where anybody thought someone was going to get hurt. But yet, there were a particular set of meanings produced here right, about homophobia about the fact that if you are to be gay, you should be humiliated and laughed at. That said, I also happen to know that these were all very nice boys. All very nice boys who think the gays should be able to get married, who don't think gays should be discriminated against. So it sets up this very complex situation where these boys can espouse civil rights for gays and lesbians, but at the same time, render sort of the fag identity, if you will, an undesirable one and an unmasculine one. And again, this isn't limited to my boys. Anybody seen this movie? Great movie, right, 40-year-old virgin. One of the best scenes from 40-year-old virgin in which two friends sit together and play video games. One of them eventually rips off the other's head in the video game. And they play this very fun game called Know High, Know You're Gay. Now, the funny thing about this game is very few uh, of the ways in which one knows that another is gay actually have to do with same-sex desire, right? These are some answers as to how one knows one is gay. You, listen to Coldplay, Celine Dion, Miami Sound Machine, Public Radio. Have sex with men. Okay, so that, that's a giveaway. Uh, give blowjobs. Have a ball rest on your face. Okay, so you've got those. Wear macrame shorts, white ties, suits, vest, V-neck sweaters. Uh, make spinach dip and sourdough bowls, watch particular TV shows, drive a particular car, aren't having sex, have false teeth, or trim your beard. Right? So you can see we have, we have one, one row of things that actually have to do with same-sex eroticism that show one is gay. And so I show this to indicate the way in which this fag discourse makes its way into popular culture and the way in which we're all conditioned to laugh at it. I laughed at this scene. 
but the meanings produced in this scene are particular meanings about masculinity, right? The things that you are rendered gay for are things that violate the rules of masculinity. Right? So the fag discourse can be aggressive, it can be humorous, it's also fluid. Remember how I, I noted that our traditional notion of bullying was one powerful kid picking on one less powerful kid? Well, that's not necessarily how the fag discourse happens. Indeed, these boys' daily lives often took the form of, of what I came to think of as a sort of fag hot potato, right? In which they were constantly lobbing the epithet at someone else, trying not to have it lobbed at them, right? This sort of, this very dynamic game. And let me give you an example of what this looks like. Again, I found myself in auto shop, as I often did when I did the research. And there were two boys, or, well, there was one boy going through the trunk of a, a car, right? He was rummaging through the trunk of a car, and he looked up and he said, where are Craig and Brian? And one boy pointed over there, right, as if to indicate that Craig and Brian were over there, because nobody could see them. And then after pointing and showing that Craig and Brian were over there, he put his hands by his hips, pulled his arms back and forth, and thrust his hips back and forth, as if to indicate that Craig and Brian were not only over there, they were over there having sex with one another, as one does, right? And when Craig and Brian came out from wherever they were, the whole class was laughing at them, right? They had been rendered on the receiving end of this fag discourse. And of course, Brian was not happy about this, right? And looked to move the object of the epithet from himself to someone else. And so what did he do? But start a round of uh, the cock game. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the cock game, if it still happens on college campuses. Maybe it did when I was in college. Um, for those of you who aren't familiar with the cock game, you start saying very, very softly that someone loves the cock and then increasingly make it louder. Uh, so Brian looked at another boy in auto shop and said quietly, Josh loves the cock. Then quite a little bit louder, Josh loves the cock until he was yelling at the top of his lungs that Josh loved the cock. Josh was very upset, everybody else was laughing, and Brian had effectively moved him, removed himself from being the object of this insult and had placed the insult on Josh, right? And so I would encourage you to think about how bullying happens in a much more fluid and dynamic way, right? That it's not from one powerful kid to one low status kid, but it can happen between peers in this very dynamic uh, and, and dangerous uh, game, if you will. Finally, bullying and homophobic bullying can happen in a collective manner. Right? This isn't something that necessarily just happens between two kids, but it happens in groups. And one of the things that I like to say when I give these sorts of talks is that masculinity itself happens in groups. Indeed, I spoke with most of the boys I'm, I'm talking about today one-on-one. -on -one. And one-on-one, -on -one, they were the sweetest, kindest, not sexist, non-homophobic kids you could ever meet. Right? But when they got into groups, and there were these, pub these expectations of a particular public performance of masculinity, that's when they tended to engage in these sorts of activities. Right? And indeed, we see the sort of collective performance of homophobia in all male spaces on a fairly regular basis. Now these are stills taken from a video at a Yankees game. Right? Some of you may be familiar with a particular song that Yankees fans sing, uh, often to Red Sox fans, right, to the tune of YMCA. And you can see in the top still up here, 
wow, that is just such a picture. Um, two older men singing to these two younger men who are in the middle, these two teenage boys, this particular song. And these young, two young boys are surrounded by older, probably drunk men, singing a song with the words, gay men, wipe that smirk off your chin. I said, gay men, what you do is a sin. Why are you gay? You suck, you suck, you suck, D-I-C-K. They have every size for young men to enjoy. You can hang out with all the boys and then launch into the chorus of YMCA. And to watch the video, you can see these two boys growing smaller and smaller as these men chant this song incredibly aggressively at them and other men laugh. Right? Now, of course, nobody thinks these young men are actually gay. Right? These young men who are Red Sox fans had the misfortune of sitting in the wrong section. And, and for that, they violated some norm of masculinity, right? Competence, most likely, right? They were incompetent sports fans. As a result, they ended up on the receiving end of this kind of homophobic behavior. Right? Again, which had very little to do with their sexuality, but was incredibly frightening, and it was collective. Uh, there's another uh, uh, instance in which I mean, these instances are numerous. There's another instance in which there was a high school in Ohio in which uh, the, the home team, uh, uh, there was a it was a football game, and, and the, the, the home team's fans started shouting at the other fans, powder blue faggots, incredibly loudly, and again and again. Um, again, they didn't think their, the, the opposing team was gay, right? But it was their way of, of, divest of, of robbing this team of masculinity. So... What does all this mean for our contemporary discussion of bullying? First, I think it means that we need to change our unit of analysis from individuals to interactions. That is, much of the current research on bullying focuses on individual level traits. How can we figure out who's going to be a bully and who's going to be a victim? What kind of home life do they have? Where do they live? Uh, what kind of grades do they get? What's their intelligence level, right? We actually try to figure out who's a bully by their IQ. And my research suggests that interactions are probably as useful a unit of analysis as individuals. That is, instead of looking at the type of boy who engages in homophobic bullying, what we might want to look at is the unit of interaction, right? What does a homophobic bullying interaction look like? Who is engaged? Where does it take place? And what kind of meanings are produced there? Because indeed, at any given time, one boy can be on the receiving end or the giving end of that sort of homophobia. And, and it's, it's really interesting when you look at the bullying literature because something that gets said repeatedly in that literature is homophobic attitudes don't predict homophobic bullying. And I always think, well, of course they don't, right? None of the boys I talked to identified as homophobic, but yet most of them engaged in homophobic bullying. Second, I would encourage us to think about bullying not necessarily as some sort of individual pathology. That is, bullying isn't some sort of quality of an individual, right? That there are mean people and that there are nice people, right? And the mean people bully and the nice people receive it. Rather, I would encourage us to think about how it is that bullying might be a reproduction of inequality, right? Bullying might be a way in which we socialize young people 
to, to understand right, what an undesirable social identity looks like and to accept that undesirability. For instance, think of the two reasons, the two most common reasons kids are bullied. They're bullied because of uh, sort of gender performance or sexual identity and because of weight. And right now, we currently live in a society that is deeply, deeply biased against fat people. And so what these young kids are doing when they're doing weight-based bullying is that they're socializing other children into accepting size discrimination. And what they're doing when they're engaging in homophobic bullying is, is socializing other young people into accepting particular forms of gender identity. So when we talk about bullying, I'd encourage us to think about what the content of bullying is and how that content might reflect larger social inequalities. Right? That it's not just these sort of random, individual, undesirable differences, but it's about larger structural inequalities. Third, when we use the word bullying, we often talk about kids, right? This isn't something adults do, right? It gets better, after all. We have a whole campaign based on this, right? We have a whole campaign called the It Gets Better campaign, started by Dan Savage, that tells young people, oh, I know homophobic bullying is bad, but once you become a grown-up, things are awesome, right? So it turns out that's not true, right? That's actually not, not true. In fact, you know, we live in a society in which People who are gender variant, that is, people who do not um, uh, express some kind of gender identity that aligns with the stereotypical male or female. We live in a society in which 44 states have no protections for gender variant people. That doesn't seem like it gets better when you become a grown-up. We have good evidence to indicate that uh, very veiled homophobic language is used in presidential campaigns. Right? When you look at the Bush-Kerry campaign, for instance, right, and you see Kerry on his very expensive French road bike and George Bush on his manly mountain bike, right, and the discussions that, f and I'm a mountain biker, so you know, I'm actually you know, on Bush's side on that one, but, um, but you, you see the discussions that follow. Right? They're all they're these veiled discussions about Kerry's lack of masculinity right? on his French road bike. Right? So when we see things like that, it becomes clear it doesn't necessarily get better when you become an adult. Indeed, when you look at school punishment policies, you see that this, isn't, this kind of homophobia is not limited to childhood. So these are two boys in Arizona who are going to get in a fight, and their principal decided that the best way to punish them would be to make them hold hands in front of the rest of the student body. Right? So he used homophobic shaming as a form of punishment. And indeed, this is a picture that went you know, up on Twitter quite quickly as the students surrounded these boys and took pictures and threw them up on the internet. Or then we have one of my favorite pictures from Operation Enduring Freedom. Uh, that was the time when we invaded Afghanistan after 9-11. Uh, this is a picture of uh, a military personnel who is scrawled hijack, spelled incorrectly, this fags on a bomb that was to be dropped on Afghanistan. Now, I didn't interview these military personnel, but my hunch is they didn't actually think that people in Afghanistan were gay. That's just my hunch. Right? 
Rather, they were using FAG the same way the boys I interviewed did, right? They were using it as a way to rob these people of their masculinity, indeed to rob them of their humanity. So we know that this kind of homophobia is not limited to childhood. Indeed, that this kind of homophobic bullying persists throughout all levels of adulthood. So we need to be careful about the way in which we use the word bully and mean children when really it crosses uh, lines of age very, very clearly. Finally, I would advocate that we need to actually rethink the very phrase or the very term homophobia. When we are thinking about homophobia, the effects of homophobia, measuring homophobia, we need to keep in mind the extent to which homophobia is a gendered phenomenon and not just some sort of global fear of same-sex desire. Because otherwise it seems incidental that it's primarily young men who are engaging in these activities. And we miss the ways that a gendered homophobia becomes a central part of young men's masculine selves, right? Because if we look at official mem uh, measures of homophobia, the future is looking really, really bright, right? Because just like people don't like saying they're racist, so if you ask people on a survey, hey, are you racist? Turns out people say no. Shocking, right? Um, but we know that racism exists, right? Study after study comes out uh, showing that you know, African-American men are targeted for stop and frisk, that young African-American men are seen as more dangerous and violent than young white men. So we know racism exists, regardless of the fact that everybody keeps saying, I'm not racist at all. We're seeing something similar with homophobia. You ask people if they're homophobic, they say the same thing. No, totally not, right? Like gay marriage is sweeping the country, right? Things have changed. Again, I think my data indicates um, that homophobia is more complex than a particular attitudinal disposition, right? That it's become woven into these practices of masculinity in a way that often goes unrecognized. And getting us to laugh at it, you know, as like what happened in a 40-year-old virgin, that's one of the ways in which it goes unrecognized. Because if we make a joke of something, right? This is what South Park has made its whole career on. If we make a joke about something and laugh about it, then we certainly can't be the people who are engaging in those kinds of discriminatory practices. So, I'd like to go back to the question I asked in the beginning of this talk. Why didn't I specifically address bullying in a book focused on young men's homophobic interactions? And I think the answer was that I was too focused on the reproduction of inequality, something that's really not taken into account in these current academic and popular discussions about bullying. So I would say that we need to expand our current discussion about bullying, and we need to reframe it to include discussions of inequality. Because when we call aggressive interactions between young people bullying and ignore messages about inequality, we risk divorcing what they are doing from larger issues of inequality and sexualized power. And in doing so, we discursively contain this behavior within the domain of youth and portray it as something in which adults have no role. It allows adults to project blame onto kids for being mean to one another, rather than acknowledging that their interactions reflect society-wide problems of inequality and prejudice. It allows adults to tell kids that it gets better as if the adult world is so rife with equality and kindness. It allows the rest of society to evade blame for perpetuating the structural and cultural inequalities that our young people are playing out 
interactionally. Thank you.